0: Like there are so many different ways of loving God. There are different ways of feeling the presence of God. There are different ways of expressing worship uh, to God and embodying your faith. And I think if, if I don't know, I, I think if Christian leaders, you know, kind of varied those resources that they go to, I think that it could be really, really life-giving and, and, not, and not fearful of, you know, messing with your capital T truth, but really like adds to it, like in such rich ways.
1: All right, friends. Well, that was Angie Hong, who you're gonna to get to hear from in a little bit. And we had a great chat that I think you are gonna appreciate and enjoy. Before we get into that interview though, We have our first sponsor on the Space for Faith podcast, which is super fun. So hanging out with me today is Colin Stringfellow from Urban Pioneer Roasters, which is a coffee roasting company. Say say hi to the good people. Hello. Colin, so we get our coffee from you already. Like share with the folks a little bit about like, why, how did you get into coffee and making it and roasting it?
2: Yeah, so I got into coffee about twenty years ago now. Working at regular chain coffee shops, and I did that for a really long time. And at some point, I was like, "This is cool," but I feel like I, I I'm a learner, and so I wanted to learn the next thing. And so I started to kind of like play around with roasting coffee on like a popcorn popper in my garage. And then the full story is that then I wanted to get married, and so I needed to buy a ring, and so you don't buy rings with coffee shop money. So I sold the coffee to buy the ring. So Tori, my wife, her ring is entirely funded by coffee roasting.
1: I love that. That's so fun. <laughs> I don't know if, maybe I knew that, but I don't remember that. So, yeah, so you, you roasting your own coffee, Urban Pioneer Roasters. And where where did that name come from? I Not from me.
2: That was from my family. I believe my sister, Brittany in particular, came up with that, where I was making, well, I was making a lot of like my own deodorant, my own like shampoos and stuff like that. And then I've like always just had like the desire to like make, not desire, but I just wanted to like learn how to make things. And so I was making like simple syrups and jams and all this random stuff. And my sister called me an urban pioneer and then that's just stuck. And that's urban pioneer roasting company.
1: Love it. But none of the, none of the like deodorants is making its way into the coffee. correct? No, but I still, no, no, but I still wear it. (laughs) Well, and like you're in, you're in the bunker with me right now and you smell nice. Thank you. So I think it's working out okay. So I think the folks here will care about a couple of things about like your coffee is good. Like we get it. In fact, you grew up full disclosure to everyone here. Like Colin grew up in my youth ministry and we've known each other for a long time Mm. and been around each other for a long time. And so he was a part of the church that I was leading and we were wanting to switch our coffee over. But we didn't want to just go with Colin just because we knew him and loved him. Like We wanted to go with good coffee. So we actually did a blind tasting over the course of like two weeks, I think we did it, where we had four different coffees that we were considering, and we had them blindly. And then all all the coffee drinkers would go out, and they would try them all, and they would vote every week. And Colin's coffee, the Urban Pioneer Roasters, won far and away. So that church is still serving that coffee today. We still get it in our home today. So it's good coffee. But more than just that, there's a couple of things that I think the folks that are listening would care about. One is that, like, you are a part of this community. Like, you care about the kinds of things that we're talking about here. Like, this stuff matters to you. Yeah, absolutely. And you are currently pursuing your Ph.D. And, like, like, tell us, like, what you're getting your Ph.D. in.
2: Yeah, so I did my master's in... heresiology and i really thought that i was going to continue with heresiology
1: yeah i had no idea what heresiology was yeah it's like the
2: study of early christian heresy
1: which you know we all like to do
2: yeah so really focusing i focused a lot on this guy named simon magus who shows up in acts chapter 8 and i thought that that's what i was going to do my my phd on as well and then i kind of realized that over the past like my whatever how however long I've been doing school now I've been studying magic as a component um, to everything I do and so my <laughs> this not isn't... like
1: Magic the Gathering
2: no not Magic the Gathering more like I don't know magic like uh, not like yeah not like rubber band trick that Mike knows how to do but like other types of magic I don't know
1: Uh Simon Magus like raises people from the dead <laughs> so <laughs> <laughs> my my magic is good magic and if you all could see it I've got a few party <laughs> tricks.
2: <laughs> But my but my PhD is going to be on the book of John, and how that's all going to fold together, you'll have to just wait and see when I put my dissertation together, because I'm also trying to figure it out.
1: Great. So the thing for Colin is that just like he was raising money for a ring, he is working his way through his PhD program, and now he's married and he's got a couple of kids, mm-hmm. and so this is one of the ways that he's paying the bills, is with Urban Pioneer Roasters. So... For folks that are interested in the coffee, given it like trying uh, a pound, you buy a pound at a time. Is that how we do it? So that buy a pound of it, what kinds do you have? Like I was just talking to you on the way in that we get different ones from you on a regular basis. And the one we had a couple of weeks ago, I think you said was a Honduras Mm -hmm. coffee. Yeah. It was super good.
2: Yeah. I don't know how to pronounce the second part to it, so um, I won't even try because... My Honduran friends would be frustrated out there, but it's a, so it's a Honduran, it's pretty fruity. It's got some fruity notes to it, but it's also pretty subtle. And then I also have a China right now that I'm roasting, which is, this is like one of China's first like specialty coffees that they have pumped out because they're known for their teas and this is the first coffee that they have produced. And so I've been doing that.
1: Well, so if the fine folks want to get a pound of, of China coffee, of Honduran coffee and give it a try where do they find you how do they get in contact with you
2: yeah so you can go to upr coffee all one word on instagram
1: (laughs) i don't have a website or anything like that so don't get too excited (laughs) upr coffee for urban pioneer roasters yeah so upr coffee on the instagram and send you a message on there yeah yeah just send me a message so as you can tell from the guy who makes his own soap, makes his own jam, makes his own deodorant, all this stuff, the internets are not the thing that like he's spending his time on. What he's instead spending his time on is making some good coffee yeah. for the fine folks. So it might feel a little janky, but I promise that once you message with Colin, you're going to love him. He's a good dude. <laughs> he makes good coffee. I hope that you are pleased with it. Thanks for being our first sponsor on here, man. Thank you for having me. Angie Hong is with us on the podcast today and Angie you you're a worship leader writer speaker out in Durham North Carolina mm-hmm. is that all right so far
0: that is all correct
1: I haven't <laughs> messed anything up yet no all right good good Angie we got to meet at at a gathering that happened out near your neck of the woods out in Raleigh I think it was last year mm-hmm. and I I just got super fascinated by you and found out we had a bunch of friends in common and I would love to, we want to talk about like worship, the future of worship gatherings, diversity, inclusion, all of that. Like, But before we get all that to all those spaces, I would love to hear a little bit of your story of kind of how you got to where you're at right now. Give us a little context for you.
0: Oh, goodness. Okay. Life story. Here we go.
1: In 30 seconds or less. Yeah.
0: <laughs> Well, I started out in the field of music therapy. Actually, I was a music therapist. I work with mostly children and, and older adults using music as my sort of medium to treat and do group therapies and, and active music making. and. After I had my first child, I was really, I was really burned out and I was kind of transitioned. I got invited to lead worship at a sort of a reconciliation conference at Duke. And that sort of birthed my worship leading career. And what I found is that the skills in music therapy translate very, very well into worship leading. So. Right. It's the same principle, except this worship leading has a very, very spiritual component to it, like a very explicit spiritual Christian component to it. So I made that transition and I have been in the uh, field of worship leading ever since I've worked in very small churches. I've worked in primarily immigrant Korean immigrant churches and uh, white churches and then mega churches and small church plants that are uh, mainline. So I've kind of run the gamut. My friend Alicia likes to joke that she is denominationally promiscuous, and I adopt that language wholeheartedly. I'm very denominationally promiscuous. And then I kind of transitioned into leading worship nationally for Christian conferences. Got into Christian social justice sort of circles, and. By way of just being plugged into the evangelical world through the mega church that I was at, got to know a lot of other folks in that arena too. So that's sort of my background. And then I went to seminary at Duke, graduated one year ago. I actually made it through a pandemic and like homeschooling my kids at the same time Gosh. during lockdown. But I did it. And now I'm I'm doing a lot of other really, really exciting things that we're gonna do. Yeah.
1: Yeah, (laughs) I'm so excited to talk about them because I only know like little bits and pieces. So I've been I've been anxious to not talk about it when we're not recording. (laughs) So uh, I am curious. Did you grow up into the in the church? Did you come to faith later in life? What did that look like for you?
0: Well, I'm Korean American. I was born and raised here. I was raised mostly mostly in the South. I'm from Atlanta, so I'm very Southern through and through.
1: Are you second generation?
0: I am second gen. Yes. Okay. So my parents moved here in the, in the late sixties. I think in a lot of immigrant churches, because there are so few of us, we are minorities, right? In primarily white and black dominated, dominant world in the U S we're looking for identity markers, people to remind us of ourselves. And for most people though, that is the church. So I grew up in a Korean immigrant church. There is what's called a English ministry, which is just basically the kids of our parents, you know, the parents. Mm-hmm. And it was sort of a glorified kind of babysitting social hour. You know, we just sort of, it was the blind leading the blind. And we adopted sort of the, whatever the local mega church was, we sort of adopted their kind of theology and ways. So for us, that was passion. That was uh, Andy Stanley, Louis Giglio. Gosh, I used to go to his Bible study, like at North Point. When I was yeah, in the
1: singles Bible study that yeah,
0: 722. Yeah. It, I mean, they call it a Bible study, but it's actually like 2000 people every week. Yeah. Yeah. So you just sort of kind of integrate all of that into your spiritual life. So, yeah, but I did grow up in a primarily Korean American church.
1: Okay. I'm curious, like at before we even get into like, kind of where is, where is worship stuff heading? Where's the church heading? What are some of the things from that experience that you still feel sort of drawn to that you're like, I know as we, especially those of us that like grow up in church experiences, like we sometimes are, it's easier to demonize some of the stuff that we're moving from.
0: Oh, mm -hmm. and
1: I'm kind of curious what some of the things are for you that you're like, oh, these are some of the things that like, I appreciated about that, that I want to still hold on to as we reimagine the future.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Thank you for asking that question. Yeah. So I think the 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 really great gifts of being a part of an immigrant church, and I won't speak for all immigrant churches, and I'm not going to speak for all Korean churches for sure, sure. But in my experience, there are just certain things that our our church and our community did that I have not seen since that I really really miss actually, and that is when. A new immigrant moved to the United States. The church had a pot of money for these newly arrived immigrants to help get them started in the life in America, whether that was, you know, connecting them with different business opportunities and owners or a job or setting them up with housing or like, this is where you should live. This is, this is where the grocery store is just like orientation into the United States. And it was a really great way to like, just, you had a built-in community when you moved here, you weren't starting from ground zero. So I, I love that. The other thing that I really, really miss is we would go to church and this is the only time I would hang out with people like me. It was the only time where I didn't have to perform. I didn't have to translate anything right. I could just be me. And we spent the whole day together. Sunday morning, you get there early, you know, parents go to choir practice, the, all the kids get together, the youth group would get together and we would just hang out. Then we would have church or we would, you know, do our made up liturgies and, (laughs) you know, like adopt things here and there. And then. After church, we would go out to eat. We would play soccer. We would go to basketball games. We would just hang out all day. And I remember just week to week, we would teach each other how to play guitar. None of us are trained guitarists, but we taught each other how to play guitar. We had this huge songbook full of like our favorite, you know, oh my gosh, it's going to date me. But Vineyard, like, you know, all these songs that, you know, we had the chords to and we would just learn to play them. We would just like sing all day. I mean, sing and play all day. And we'd go home at night and it was just like that every day. And the church served lunch every week. And those are things that I miss is like just that deeply connected, like communal, it was like a liturgy all in itself. And like one day it it wasn't, it went so beyond the worship service itself. The worship service itself was maybe like the least meaningful. I mean, I know that sounds horrible, but it was sort of like the least meaningful thing that the most meaningful was just like that fellowship, you know?
1: Yeah. Yeah. I, I love know. that. I love the idea of all of that as a liturgical experience. Yeah. And that was remind me just a few weeks ago, I, was, I went to visit my home church and I hadn't been there in years. Yeah. And it's this little church and there's so many things I have so many issues with. I mean, it's nationalistic. fundamentalist
0: okay okay yes it's
1: patriarchal it's like women can't even serve communion it's Mm -hmm. it's all the things Mm -hmm. that they were they're celebrating the 30th uh anniversary of the pastor there and he had been giving me my first job in ministry he'd been really meaningful to me in different ways Mm -hmm. so i went to like honor him and be there for it Mm -hmm. and when i left i had this like weird almost like grieving experience where like i found myself like weeping when i left and I was trying to process, like, what do I miss about all because there's so many things here that like these are all the things that I think are wrong with the church. And and I realized the thing that I missed was that familiar, like family experience that I had had growing up where like we were in each other's homes all the time and we yeah. were like doing like and I haven't had that same experience in a church since then.
0: Yeah, same, same. I, is it is it hard? Mike, is it hard? <laughs> Is that hard to replicate? I I don't understand.
1: (laughs) I don't understand either. I've been, I don't know, I don't know all of what to do with it, but I've been thinking a lot about it since then. And I've tried to do some things myself to recreate those kinds of experiences, Yeah, but I haven't been able to.
2: Mm. And I
1: don't know, like, I've been trying to figure out, like, is it that, like, I'm trying to force something to happen? Is Mm -hmm. it that the rest of the group isn't taking that same level of ownership? is it that we just have such fast paced lives now and and really like that's changed you know i was i was born in 78 and even like i played sports growing up but rarely was sports on sundays at the time so like you had this you just had a more flexible life and calendar then right
0: mm mm-hmm yeah, there was, there was less activity for sure. I think in in the setting that I was in, <clears throat> it was sort of a matter of survival. I mean, it was really the only sure. chance that, and looking back, like if I were to theologically sort of look at it, right, like what did that time mean? It's like we are we are created in the image of God and we are image bearers, but when we don't see people that kind of reflect that back to us, or we we don't see enough that's reflected back to us of that, of that identity and the unique ways that in which we are created, we start to really doubt it. You know, like, oh my, I'm weird. I'm an alien. I'm a perpetual foreigner. And I think being there as a matter of survival, to, to understand what it meant to have, hold both Korean cultural values and American culture like what that means to fuse it or like how, how it, how often it clashed and like how to figure it all out. I mean, we needed each other through those times. And I don't know if there's like that same sort of reliance or like mutual, like understanding or like mutual reliance on each other now. I don't know. Maybe we, Yeah. Can... so. And do you at- feel
1: like that's, <laughs> that's true in immigrant communities still? Is it like as you integrate more into American society, you move towards more individualization? I think
0: I think I think the Korean culture, I think it's kind of stayed the same because of course there's always going to be immigrants coming and more and more are coming. And so that space is very needed. But I think the second gen and third gen maybe don't see a lot before them there anymore for a lot of different reasons. Kind of You know because there's other places to learn about your cultural sort of identity and your ethnic identity besides the church and yeah and so they so there's just been a huge decrease i think all around in churches but i think in those churches especially
1: okay so i i want to make sure that we jump into talking a little bit about like where you see the church heading where you see (laughs) worship gatherings heading And so you've had all these different kinds of experiences, large churches, small churches, church plants, denominationally promiscuous, (laughs) engaged in all the things. And, And so like, as you're doing that, you're starting to create some things yourself and gathering community around to be creating some things. Tell me a little bit about like what you're thinking about, what you're seeing, where, where you see or where your hopeful trajectories are headed.
0: Yeah. Well, when I was in seminary, I had a chance to really digest and process and synthesize everything that had happened the years prior. So, I I started working at Willow Willow Creek, Chicago, um, right before the twenty 26- six. So, so think about this time. Okay, right before the twenty sixteen election is when I started working.
2: Okay. and then
0: I left <laughs> in twenty eighteen which is when kind of things started unraveling in, in really, really big ways with the senior pastor. And so those are two very, very intense years. And all throughout that, I was at what, what was, what was labeled as a very multicultural church. And, in, you know, in, in those, in what the sort of churches like that will say, like is diverse is like, what is it? 25% or 20% is 20%. Happy.
1: Twenty percent non-majority, yeah, yeah,
0: twenty percent so that means you're a multicultural church. So they I think they met that quota. and but it didn't feel that way to to me, and it didn't feel that way to a lot of my friends of color that were there. and and I'd been in enough settings like that where it was like, yes, like we want diversity. we want all of this. But when it came down to it, it was just, there was such a gap in the information on how to implement it and the go-to strategy. And this has been written about many, many times. The go-to strategy was to, to have the worship leader sort of fulfill the, the roles of diversity on, you know, in the pulpit, not in the pulpit, but I don't know. I feel we are calling it a stage, but you know what I mean? Like in the front leading worship or music or like other, other things. And I thought that was, very unfair to the worship leader. Most of the worship leaders, you know, they want to sing their songs. They want to have and lead people really well into the presence of Jesus and and embodying the Holy Spirit in their lives. And on top of that, being the diversity leaders didn't feel very, it felt a little unfair. And I don't think people really meant it to be that way. But You know, if something happened like George Floyd or, you know, Mike Brown or something, it was kind of up to these people to sort of like translate um, this moment and, you know, (laughs) try to talk about what it's like to be a person of color. And I always thought that was really grossly unfair on that worship. Because
1: it's putting like an extra burden on that person. Yeah, it's a lot of pressure.
0: And it was also assuming that these were the experts on these racial dynamics. when. In most cases, like all they had to go on was experience, right? This is just my, my personal experience that I haven't come across a lot of worship leaders who have, you know, who are experts on race and identity and, you know, ethnicity. I mean, who is, you know, <laughs> like there are very few people who are, they're not scholars, you know, they're, they're, they're just here trying to, trying to do their jobs and to have this extra burden on them. You know, some of them. And and some of these worship leaders, so I saw kind of like different reactions to that, right? Some worship leaders and and people in ministry of color were just so thankful that they were finally seen, you know, um, and that seemed kind of odd because it takes an act of violence to be seen. So what does that mm-hmm. mean? Then there were others who were like, yes, I will be the voice of all people of color. I'll be the voice of all Asians, you know, and I'll tell you what it's like and there wasn't it, it was a lot of emotional sort of almost exploitative you know like i'm going to put my emotions on display so that you will care and and i thought that was a really really tricky place you know just like what what can people do with these like vulnerable emotions and and how would it be received and what would be done with it and in a lot of cases nothing was done with it after the outpouring of the emotions and the expression of of all of that grief And then there are others that were, you know, were very, very troubled by it and and kind of refused. And with everything that happened during pandemic and things like that, I see more and more people just saying like, no, I I refuse to be your translator, your person of color, who's gonna explain, you know, these acts of violence to you or or make you care, make you understand. I see more and more people saying no to that. And I think that overall it is a good thing because it will help churches to actually take on the the work themselves instead of placing the burden on, you know, worship leaders or yeah, other ministry leaders.
1: It was even in your experience, was it when you had somebody doing that act of translation kind of from the stage as a, as a sort of like, I don't know, as like a point person for that or whatever, that it made an audience who might look like me, feel like, oh, we're doing good because we've got this person who's telling us this thing and it could almost release me from the responsibility of that work? I
0: def- I mean, I definitely think that is a huge part of it, right? By having somebody who is a part of your church community, you may not even know them, right? But there's somebody on stage who's leading you uh, to kind of tell you what the work is and like that they've done the work or, or whatever, that it translates into you, you have done this work because you have listened at the, the feet of a person of color. And yeah, I, I think there have been very few congregants and leaders who have taken more steps into that. And so then the cycle starts happening almost like a very codependent. I kind of label it as like, is this codependence? Do you need some sort of shocking event, a, a, you know, violence in order to like enact this, like cycle where you get the person of color to do the thing and then you feel like relief and feel better and then kind of things stay the same and then things keep happening it just happens over and over and over again so i think if more people stop the cycle i think there can be maybe some change i don't know i'm hopeful
1: yeah 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 so what does that like translate into moving forward in terms of yeah.
0: uh, <laughs> Getting to the no, word no, word. no, it's great.
1: No, it's actually re- a really helpful framing because okay. I feel like I certainly have contributed to those sorts of cycles mm-hmm. and so um, yeah. So like, yeah. how is that not how is that not the thing going forward? How is that what what's a better, more beautiful, more life giving, more holistic way to move forward?
0: Yeah, I mean, I do believe in the church, even though I don't go right now. <laughs> I'm looking. I'm looking, Mike. I'm on the hunt. I so all you hundreds of listeners who are listening.
1: <laughs> if you I'm know
0: for a church, if you know of anybody.
1: You know of anything in the the Durham, the Durham area.
0: But I think I'm very hopeful. I have seen more and more people sort of learning, reading, reading more, and not just about sort of anti-racism or or what is it a racial reconciliation i i've seen people kind of doing i don't know a lot of like uh, listening to a lot of different theologies and this is what the i think this is where i think christian leaders can take maybe a slightly different approach or more nuanced approach as christian leaders is there is so much out there in terms of theological materials and biblical interpretations coming from people uh, of color who come from different traditions, who have a different type of narrative, especially here in the United States, but even all over the world. And there is so much out there. I mean, I didn't even know about it really until I was way into adulthood. I didn't even know these things existed, these theologians and these writers and these Great leaders existed. I had to like go actively hunt for them. But once you're exposed to different sorts of Christian thoughts coming from different places, different people, I think you get a sense of wow, like there are so many different ways of loving God. There are different ways of feeling the presence of God. There are different ways of expressing worship uh, to God and embodying your faith. And I think. If if I don't know, I, I think if Christian leaders, you know, kind of varied those resources that they go to, I think that it could be really, really life giving, and, and not and not fearful of you know messing with your capital T truth, but really like adds to it like in such rich ways. And I've seen more and more pastors do that. You know, starting, I mean, I, I have seen white pastors read things like you know, James Cone, I mean, you could start there, or Cornel West, or even W.E. Du Bois in, in a way, and different Christian leaders and their theology, like even reading up on the theology of Martin Luther King Jr. can be really helpful instead of like the platitudes, like really deep dive into like his theological thoughts, because he had some really yes. amazing writings.
1: I remember I had to read Howard Thurman's Jesus and the Disinherited.
0: Yes
1: which Dr. King kept in his uh, pocket with him all the time when he traveled. And so the first time I read it, I think I might've been in seminary. I think that's probably when I had to read it. Mm -hmm. And then I returned to it years later after I'd done some like other kinds of work. And when I returned to it, I I had the same book that I had used then in seminary. I first read it. And as I was reading it, I was reading my notes in the margins and I was so like embarrassed by the way that I had, engaged with Thurman's work at that point. Really? At the, oh, I was discrediting things left and right. That oh, I was like,
0: yeah, I would
1: write like in the margins out of context and like, <laughs> underlying things. And one <laughs> of the things that I realized for me was that like, I needed the uh, like, I needed to engage these things at a mm-hmm. point where like I was defensive and had walls up around it. Mm-hmm. And and then I needed to re-engage them later and I couldn't ju- like, I wasn't just going to be ready to receive it. I kind of had to like work my way into it. And I don't remember, I was going, I was going somewhere with that, that I don't remember, but all of that to say like that, that was this, like this realization for me of like, Oh, this has been like working on me in different ways mm-hmm. and I'm going to receive this in different ways. And I, I needed that then, but I probably need it more now.
0: Can I ask you some questions around this, Mike? Cause I think this, this, this is the thing, right? Like, so when you're writing your notes in the margins and you were discrediting, I mean, I I saw plenty of that. I see plenty of that happening now even. And my question to you, like where, yeah. Like, why do you think that was, was it, and what changed for you? Like what made you go turn around, turn back around and, and revisit some of those?
1: Yeah. Um, so it'll take me a little bit of a rabbit trail to get there. So when I, <laughs> okay. uh, let me tell you another story first. When okay, I, oh, okay. I, I don't know if I've actually told this one in, in any kind of public setting. Cause I feel really embarrassed about it. I was in uh, my first two years of college. I was in community college mm-hmm. and I was going, I was in an English class and we read uh, Dr. King's why we can't wait. Mm-hmm. And then we were having class discussion on it. And I got in a, very tense, like verbal fight with, with a young black woman in my class over essentially reparations and of her arguing for it. And me saying like, I didn't own slaves. My I... family didn't own slaves. Yes. Like, why should I be held responsible for mm-hmm. it? Like, right. So a lot of that had to do with like, eh, those were never things that my parents said to me, but a lot of that had to do with my social location. Right. And I didn't realize how much it took me a long time to realize how much that was affecting my worldview and all the things that I was seeing. And it was only through the like, um, that woman didn't convince me because like at that stage, there's probably two things for me. One is I wasn't probably open to hearing her. Mm -hmm. And the other was the way that, that out of her passion made me feel backed into a corner. And when I feel backed into a corner, I'm going to double down on where I'm at.
0: Yes. Mm-hmm. And so I'm going to
1: come back stronger because I want to be right. Yep. So honestly, what changed was probably like I, I've i been pretty committed to, to reading a lot and trying to be curious. And I would say the people that I respect when I would read would open up different little doors and there are these like little cracks that would open up. And so some of it was through personal conversations with people that didn't, that I wasn't being put on the defensive with Mm -hmm. that were secure enough in where they were, that they were able to be like, you're an idiot, but they, they didn't need to say that to me. Like they, (laughs) um, and they could share, like, so I would hear experiences, like even I have a lot of family connections and law enforcement stuff, but it wasn't until like my black friends started sharing with me their regular experiences. I was like, oh, I need to open my eyes up to your experience is different than what mine is. And then really a lot of it had to do with reading genuinely. Like it was just like, I was just really committed to like, I'm just going to keep reading things that make me feel uncomfortable.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Cause I think that I need to do that to grow and stretch and learn. So mm-hmm. I feel like I'm still really, really early in a lot of like figuring this kind of stuff out and understanding and doing my own work. But, mm-hmm. but I feel like that started like the, That's the kind of stuff that like would cause me to read Thurman later and be like, Oh my gosh, I was such a jackass.
0: (laughs) I mean, Mike, some people go their whole lives without ever, you know, getting to the jackass um, point. So, I mean, you're fairly early. Um, I'll take that. (laughs) Yeah. So uh, anyway, (laughs) getting back. I mean, I, I think that is so like hearing stories like yours is so important for people just to know that like, it it right, like when you first hear it, it does sound like, oh my gosh, like what the what is this? You know, this is this is not the gospel. This is not and um but it takes over time there's there's things that shift and change and you know, things just keep coming back around and yeah. So I yeah, I think that's really interesting. I, I think that's really interesting. I think it points to sort of like maybe like a fear around something being not what you thought it was or something as concrete as people like would like to think that faith is like christianity is right like it's it's there it's cemented like jesus is the answer like and that's it and then when you're like oh there's all these multiple roads to get there it almost i mean it can really mess with you i mean i think it does mess with a lot of people like you know With the concrete notions, but it's like that curiosity. And and I will so I'll share a story. It's the Aaron Nequist story. And I know he's a part of this like community. So yeah, I feel like I can share it. So I invited Aaron Nequist to (laughs) to this Mystic Soul conference. It was the first one, and it was the first contemplative retreat for centering BIPOC folks and queer folks. And it was it was the first one and created by my friend Teresa, who is in Chicago. And I don't know what made me invite him, but I did. And he came. And so we walked into that space and that space was kind of wild even for me. Like there were, yeah, there was a lot of shouting. There's like contemplation through like shouting and through movement and lots of like acupuncture going on and like smells and all that stuff. And I would like check in on him be like, hey, are you okay? I was like, I, I almost wanted to apologize, you know, but he was actually sitting there. He was so calm. He had this smile on his face and he was like, I'm having a great time. This is not like, believe it or not, I'm, I'm not at all like, you know, nothing about this space feels weird to me or, you know, doesn't make me scared or anything. I'm just having a great time. Thank you for inviting me. And that's when I knew like Aaron and I would be friends forever. <laughs> <laughs> like, you're a real one, Aaron. (laughs) But because it was sort of evidence, like coming into the space that, you know, of the the work that he had been doing in his own journey and like doing a lot of reading and opening himself up in his own contemplative life. And I I was just so thankful for him to be there. And we had many conversations afterwards. So, so yeah, I, I think like people of color can really tell when somebody's done that sort of or, or is on that journey. And I think, you know, it's not, it's not a coincidence that people would share their stories with you openly and willingly because they, maybe they sense that you can hold it in a way that, that you wouldn't have back when you were writing notes in the margins, (laughs) (laughs) you know, and it's a part of loving your neighbor. It's, it's like, if I don't, if I don't like, know how you love god and if i don't like value and see see how you love god and how you understand god and how you know that god god's love is real and how god is real then how can i love you as my neighbor like as a neighbor like how can i commune with you how can i how can i be in in uh, in a eucharistic community with you You
1: yeah so can i ask you a question i'm trying to i'm trying to figure out what the tension is between Somebody like, like, let's just go back to, to 20 year old Mike, who's arguing with a woman in community college. Like I needed people who, who were willing to befriend me at that point, who were willing to be kind and generous towards me. Like I needed that for my own journey. But at the same time, I also recognize, or I've come to recognize, I should probably say that, that to expect people, especially people of color to do that and to do that for me, is not always the most helpful thing for them and can actually for some folks at where they're at in their their own journey and experience can actually be harmful to them mm-hmm. like what do you mind talking through that tension a little bit of like or even like is that what i should be needing most is some people that can be kind of generous should, like what does it look like for me to do my own work in that uh, i don't i don't know what the question is exactly in that
0: yeah but, I, but, is, I okay. but i think is I you know a springboard I, yeah okay. yeah i think like Leaders, especially, um, I'm always looking for conversation partners, right? Like I, I, I'm happy to like have a ministry moment with somebody, prayer moments with people, I'm also looking for conversation partners, especially along these lines, like, like you and I are having a conversation, right? I, I love having good conversation partners who will help me think and who will like really challenge me on things. And I need those people in my life. Right. And I think like you're sharing sort of the same, like you're looking for people to kind of like, not journey with you and not do the work for you, but people that you, that will be patient and like communicate with you and tell things. And I think that there's a difference in the posture. There's a difference in like, I want you to tell me like what all is wrong and what it's like to be you and that will be it. And I will do like a sprint with you versus like I'm in a marathon, you know, like I'm very, I'm very aware of where I am in the marathon, like mile one, mile 20, and sort of like, I'm just sharing it with you. And I think the more transparent and the more you understand that and can communicate that, I think those conversation partners do, do come like they, they do come and it feels a little safer. Mm -hmm. So if, for instance, if you're a 20 year old Mike and you're like, yeah, I read the Howard Thurman book. I know like this and this and this. And like, I, I want you to tell I want you to tell me like what it's like to be a person of color, what it's like to be a woman of color, like Asian woman, like Orientalism, all that stuff. I you know I might have I might maybe pause for some education but it would be different than if you had come to me at now and said you know I I've been reading this or I'm really curious about this this thing that you wrote or I you know have been reading whatever or I listened to something and I would really can I ask you some questions or can we have some conversation about it that feels different to me because that is evidence that you've done some groundwork before that conversation, right? Like you're not counting on me as a teacher and you're not using me as a resource. Cause that's a whole other, you know, people of yeah. color know when they're being used as a resource. Okay. <laughs> and so like trying to disguise friendship as I just want you as a resource. I mean, intuition, I, we, we know, you know, like we know when we're being used. I, I mean, yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. I think a, there's a big difference there. And Google is free, you know? You can Google <laughs> a lot of people. You can Google a lot of stuff. Google is free.
1: What I'm hearing you say is like that the way that that one of the ways maybe or maybe a really significant way that the church moves forward is not necessarily through like tokenism, not necessarily through like let's make sure we have a diverse stage and somebody who's something significant happens, we're responding to it, but actually like That the work underneath that or behind that, or before that is paying attention to listening to learning from a diverse set of voices that are coming from different angles, experiences, tribes that are all trying to uh, make sense of the Christian story, but that are expanding the way that we think about it, which is then translating into different ways that we engage in what church looks like, what liturgies look like. Is that, is that a fair sort of summary?
0: Yeah. And if there, if I see sort of evidence of that engagement, I think that's important too, beyond sharing personal stories and experiences. I think there, if, if there's like some act, if it, yeah, because, right, like being a Christian should, it, it costs something to be a Christian or it should. And it, I think that when we, in our steps in action, when we take those bold steps in action and when we follow like our convictions and we've, and we kind of follow it through there's, there's sort of evidence of that. Right. And I think that becomes very clear too, that, that we can have a conversation, we can have an honest conversation. We can, you know, we can move forward together. Yeah.
1: Yeah. All right, so you're involved with a few different things, right? now. Yes. Probably, probably a lot of things. Yeah. Are you? All right. What? Where do you want to start in talking about the things that you're engaged in? Do we? Want yeah, yeah, yeah. Commons. Yeah, um, let's talk about kinship commons. Yeah, okay.
0: yeah, yeah. So with kinship commons, right? So saying because this ties into what I just said, you know, thinking about the worship leaders of color or on the who are marginalized, who you f- have felt used do feel pigeonholed in a way, have been sort of policed to show like part of themselves, but not the whole thing, whose multiculturalism has been accepted, but their the racialization of themselves have not been accepted. We have all these like worship leaders that have great gifts and songwriting and arts and all of these things who are just dying to express themselves and their faith through these gifts that they have and no sort of platform in which to sort of do it in. And, and so Kinship Commons, we realize that moving forward, that liturgy, which has largely been, you know, kind of formulaic and contained, contained as in like just right here, like not going beyond that. What are ways that Kinship Commons can really speak into that moment? We are four women of color that automatically sets us apart from every other worship collective. In the world.
1: (laughs) Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. I mean, I'm not super familiar in the worship space, but none that I know of.
0: Yes, me as well. I mean, there are, no, I, yeah, anyway, but there are four of us, and we want to create like meaningful we want to curate sort of worship experiences that help people in this in this time that we're in kind of feel less fragmented, right? So so more connected in a very fragmented sort of world that we find ourselves in, a reconstitution of embodiment of our faith when so much of that of our embodiment has been cut off or, you know, enslaved or policed or or things like that. And we want to really like have things that are uncontained and beautiful and sort of that point to curiosity and the mystery of Christ, you know? Yeah. That kind of leads to this openness that, that we talked about that helps people connect to the divine and to each other. So that's sort of what we're, what we're doing and is exciting. I have a great team. I have the greatest team in the whole wide world. They are, you know, Three three other so there's me and then there's Julie Julie Ty, who is the chapel director at Fuller Seminary. There is Jen Geda who is originally from Guatemala, and she is an, a phenomenal preacher and really understands the difference between transliteration and translation. She could blow your mind. I mean, it's just amazing what she's got. And then we have Tamisha Tyler, who is a theopoetics, like she used to direct the this organization called ARC, which is arts, religion, and culture, which is theopoetics. So sort of like the art of the words to bring about theological, like, insight and meaning and spirituality. I
1: lo- I've never heard that term before, theopoetics. I like theopoetics,
0: that yeah, it's a whole field. It's it's a lot of academic stuff, but it's sort of saying, like, we want to sense and know these theological sort of findings in different ways. So there's a lot of poetry involved. There's a lot yeah. of poets. yeah.
1: And yeah. what does like the tangible work end up looking like? Is it song creation? Is it like going into spaces and helping to create liturgy in those spaces? What does it what does end up looking like?
0: Yeah. Right now, we want to – there's two sort of things, right? So we do – we are working with organizations and conferences and – different things to help restructure their gatherings and bringing liturgy to the entire thing, not just like the 20 minutes in the beginning and, and the Saturday night experience, you know, (laughs) like we're, we're, like, we're working with one conference right now. That's in a boutique hotel. There's like art everywhere. And we're helping bringing worship, liturgy and spiritual formation throughout the entire time that they're there throughout the entire weekend. And not just right before the speaker comes and does their thing. And that will involve like, you know, moving our bodies in different ways, you know, having different moments outside and in the in the hotel. I mean, there's all sorts of ways that we're thinking through it. And then the the people that we contract with, right, to to do the music and the spoken word and all the liturgy, those folks um, are all people of color. And we're helping to bring about sort of more freedom in that artistic lens that they will bring to the liturgies so we have like kind of one main goal and that involves like a minor goal you know yeah yeah
1: i like a lot so would this be a thing that like churches that are trying to figure out um yeah how to how to move forward how to be more holistically engaged that they would bring you all in to help them shape the way that they're thinking about their worship services as well
0: so i say yes there's a lot of I'm seeing a lot of
1: hesitation
0: because let's see it's really hard I mean I just want to as a worship leader myself who's done it many years right it's really hard for worship leaders to they got to meet deadline every Sunday yep and that's hard there is limited time and so we don't want to be the ones to be like okay we'll you know we'll create this stuff for you and you just do it we don't want it to be that like practical, I don't know, we want to invite people to experience So whether that's a retreat, or a conference space or or some sort of gathering outside of your every Sunday sort of thing to kind of um, Yeah, have that experience. And maybe you might take something from it and make it more tangible in your own local community. Does that make sense? Yeah, we we don't get too granular right now. Because we we really feel like people want space for relief and release and healing. And those transformative spaces is sort of like where we want to be at.
1: Yeah. yeah. And will you all put on your own sort of gatherings at some point, or will it always be like helping? No, you will do some of your own. We
0: will. We will. Yeah. Good. Right now, like we've linked up with organizations because we want to flex those creative muscles. And then that will, you know, and then once we get that going, we're going to host our own sort of gatherings, which is like a whole other ball game too. It so.
1: it is a whole other ball I game. I know,
0: you know um, them. Help me. I know
1: me. it. <laughs> it's well. But one of the things I love about you doing that is, like like the work that I'm doing with post-evangelical churches, mm-hmm. I like to say it's in the transition from innovators to early adopters. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. one of the differences between innovators and early adopters is early adopters need to experience and see a thing in order to capture their imagination, in order to yes. then contextualize it and make it their own. It's, and uh, yes. so they need those immersive experiences mm-hmm. that you're creating in order to... Not to copy it and mimic it. Not to have you hand them the like here's the here's the zip file of all the things that you need to do. But yes. in order to stir something in them to sort of like set a catalyst in motion for
0: them. That's right. Yeah. Yes. That's exactly. That's exactly. I mean, Perfect. that is the work that you're doing, and we are also sort of doing that. We kind of want to stay in that realm, so we're not yeah. going to do like the song sheets. But you will come and connect with with God. You know.
1: And- so, where do folks find that stuff? Where Where are you on the internets?
0: The internets, the internets are still being. Decided. Thanks for thanks
1: for keeping that going. By the way, Develop-
0: the I mean, I think the best place would probably be Instagram. Okay, you know, we're trying to be, we're trying to act like we're young.
1: That's where <laughs> the the kids. I've been told the kids aren't on the Instagram as much anymore. You gotta. I know. Gotta start moving along.
0: We're like in the t- yeah we we will get, get on the TikTok going, TikTok. but. I think um we are we want to experiment with people who are experimenting. So that's where this uh, Faith and Justice group that we that we mentioned before. So they are this learning platform where you read incredible stuff like we were just referring to, right? And you flesh it out in sort of cohorts, but it's also a community that's not social media. So you you know people better. You get to know people better and a lot of people say that that has been their church which i mm. think is very significant it's like this third space and then they host these gatherings and kinship commons has been working in this learning platform we've created liturgy in in a virtual format to have asynchronous worship experiences really <laughs> Holes. yeah this since like a January, I think with Uh, faith
1: and justice,
0: with faith and justice. Yeah. So we've created interactive sort of, but asynchronous, right? Because it's a, it's a self-paced thing. So yeah. And cohort leaders will say like, I use your videos in my cohort meetings. Like we use your songs, like every time we meet, you know, twice a month, we use your songs or we'll talk about the practices that you've put. So there's a whole section in the learning platform called practices. And that's where we upload all of our things and people, yeah, people have really resonated with it. It's, it's very experimental because we've never done that before. We've never done asynchronous worship practices before.
1: (laughs) Yeah. It's, I mean, it's super fascinating to me to think about the idea of creating a thing like that. That's like, it's not just creating an in-person experience and it's not just, um, live streaming or filming an in-person experience, but, um, creating an almost like on demand kind of a way of engagement that still has this like semi-communal experience with it too. Yeah.
0: Yes. Because it, they do, it is interactive. You don't just sit back and watch it. Right. Interact with it. Yeah. It's I great. love that.
1: <laughs> I mean, talk a little bit about your experience with faith and the faith and justice network and, and even like for folks that aren't super familiar with it, like, do you mind just sharing just briefly about it?
0: Yeah, yeah, sure. So Faith and Justice is formally, it was called begin House. It This learning platform has existed for about 10, 11 years now, and it's, and Faith and Justice is spearheaded by a man named Peter Choi, who is a, he is a legit historian. I mean, he's a pastor for sure, but he is a historian. Yeah. And, he, yeah. And I think like instead of teaching in a in a seminary, which he could totally do, he has created this learning platform. And so people, you can sign up on a monthly basis, or you can sign up for the entire year. And every month, there is a theme and there is a primary reading with some secondary readings. And usually the author of the book will give a webinar. So we have like Cole Arthur Riley coming up. Last year we had Kristen Dumay and Allison Barr, right? They came and some other people I can't think of right now, but they all came and they, you know, they were the ones teaching their own book. And then you meet with cohorts. You can sign up for a cohort to further have a discussion and flesh it out. And you do a liturgy together and you answer questions together. And it, it's, yeah, it's, it's kind of, it's a great community. And I I didn't think it would be like a community, but it, it has. It has mm. been a community.
1: That's mm-hmm. neat. And it's really affordable, I think, too. Like it's
0: super affordable. Yeah. yeah. It's it's like only like twenty dollars a month. And oh, then gosh. if you sign up for the whole year, it's like you you can pay lump sum for it. And then what they also I don't know if they advertise this just as much, but if you're in seminary, you can some seminaries they have partnership with. So you right, get right. Credit you get you get academic credit for taking this like as a class. Yeah, kind of really cool.
1: I mean, I feel like they're a great step for folks that are that are listening that that are wanting to be exposed to a greater earth of voices, like you were talking about before. That's a great like tangible way to do that. I'm gonna have Peter on here at some point, and he he'll be engaged with our gathering in October. Yeah. Gosh. Angie, are are we, as we're getting close to, I mean, I've kept you for almost an hour here. So (laughs) are, are, are we missing anything that, that you wanted to make sure that we hit on before we close out?
0: Like you said, with Howard Thurman, you had some like, oh, and we're venturing into new sort of like worship practices and we're highly experimental and I think like what kind of gave me the green light to do that. And I don't know when you got the green light, but for me, I was always stuck on like, it has to be, you know, this a certain way, or there always has to be these components. But I think like a, a while back I was really into labyrinths. I got really into labyrinths, like walking labyrinths. I think they're very, really amazing practices. Right. And I've seen some really beautiful labyrinths that are in churches And even outside, but like, I've seen really beautiful churches that have beautiful labyrinths. And when I learned that the history of the labyrinth was like, so pagan, I was like, all right, when it comes to worship, all bets are off. Like we're going, (laughs) we're going there. And I'm excited. I'm very excited. And I hope that other people feel excited about that too. Just come and find us, find me anytime. And you know. I mean, I, I'm, I'm here for it. Yeah. I think that's mostly what I wanted to say. Yeah.
1: Yeah. All right. All <laughs> right. Well, when you think of the other things that you want to say, we'll we'll schedule another one of these. I mean, it only took us like six months to get this one on the books.
0: I know. Right. <laughs> well, you're, you're uh, the, well, you know, I, I, know. <laughs> I had to get on the waiting list to be yeah. on this podcast. So. <laughs> oh gosh. All
1: right. Angie, where do folks find you who want to be able to follow up? Cause Cause I want the folks to pay you lots of money and to, oh, um, I will have to... accept the money.
0: <laughs> um, yeah, I, again, I'm on Instagram. <laughs> Angie K. Hogg. You can also go to my website, but it's very, very outdated. I, I, it'll probably redirect you to my link tree too. But I, I write a fair bit on this topic and other topics, including being Asian American. So if you just find me sort of, um, Instagram, um, under my name, Angie K-Hong, K-A-Y, A-N-G-I-E, K-A-Y-H-O-N-G, then you can find like sort of everything right there.
1: It's wonderful. Yeah. So good. Angie, it's really kind of you to make some time today. I'm really um, excited to hear about the work that you're doing. I'm really excited for the potential of of folks being shaped by that, of churches being shaped by that. And so, yeah, yeah thanks Thank for sharing all that with you. us.
0: Thanks, Mike.